This is the Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett, a podcast from the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, an organization dedicated to eradicating racism and hate and spreading anti-racism. Listen as Donzel talks about the relevant topics that will inspire you and help build your capability to take action and change the world. Because none of us are doing enough as long as racism still exists. And now, here's your host, Donzel Leggett. Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of season three of the Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett. In this episode, I welcome to the show physician and healthcare executive, Dr. Tamika Lashigate, to tell her incredibly inspiring story and share her perspective on racism in healthcare and the resulting long-standing disparities in care and outcomes for people of color, most acutely black people, that even she, a doctor, has experienced. Now let's get started with our show. So I am Donzo Leggett, host of the Arc of Change podcast and founder of the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, or ARC. Our vision at ARC is to build a racism-free world, and our mission is to provide inspiration, education, and support for you to transform, practice, and spread anti-racism and anti-hate. This begins with our three-step process of personal transformation to anti-racism. The first step is erasing your ignorance about racism and hate. The second step is about educating yourself about anti-racism. And the third step is all about building the character and confidence to stand up, speak out, and take action to spread anti-racism and anti-hate and make positive change happen. Now, this is needed more than ever because, sadly, there are many places where we expect to still see racism. But one area we don't expect to see it is in healthcare. We tend to believe that the people who go into healthcare, the nurses, the doctors, technicians, administrators, go into it for the right reasons. Yes, we understand that they also want a career and they need to have a job to pay for and take care of their families. But more than anything, we want to believe that they altruistically want to help people. All people, regardless of race, gender, ethnicity, or any other differences, we want to believe that they represent basic human decency. We also want to believe that they are scientists, true scientists at the core, that they have studied the facts about the human body and about humanity at a biological level, and they know for a fact that race is a fallacy, a social construct, not based on on science. We want to believe that they, above all others, should know that we are all the same biologically. But unfortunately, this isn't the case for everyone in healthcare. Racism in healthcare is real. Whether you consider past examples, like the so-called Tuskegee experiment, where hundreds of black men who had been diagnosed with syphilis, were never told that they had this disease, but were instead told they were being treated for bad blood. Didn't receive any treatment at all. In fact, they received placebos so that the doctors and researchers could observe the effects of the disease of syphilis over extended years on the human body. Many of these black men experienced painful and debilitating health 
and many of them died from the disease? Or what about all of the women who were experimented on and operated on in the 1800s by the so-called father of gynecology with no anesthesia whatsoever because he believed that black people didn't feel pain and who I refuse to name because he doesn't deserve the credit for modern gynecology. The black women victims do. Or what about the current examples? As evidenced by the February 25th, 2020 Harvard Global Health Institute article, Racial Bias in Medicine, which said the following, race-based physiological myths have long influenced medical practice. Even today, some doctors believe that African-Americans are more tolerant of pain. One study found that relative to other racial groups, physicians are twice as likely to underestimate black patients' pain. In fact, a few years ago, researchers at the University of Virginia surveyed over 200 white medical students and residents and published the results in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. The results showed that half, yes, 50% of these medical students and residents held false physiological beliefs about African-Americans. Nearly 60% of them thought that black people's skin was thicker. And 12% of them thought that black people's nerve endings were less sensitive than those of white people. These racist beliefs in medicine have been ingrained for centuries and have in the past and continue today to lead to terrible health outcomes for people of color, most specifically and most acutely African-Americans. In 2019, a report by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality found that on a variety of healthcare quality measures, Black Americans and Native Americans received worse care than white people for about 40% of the measures. And Hispanic people and Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders received worse care than whites for 33% of the measures. Racism in healthcare is real. And people are dying because of it. According to the CDC, the life expectancy among African-Americans is four years lower than that of white Americans. In the United States, racial and ethnic minority populations experience higher rates of poor health and disease across many health conditions, including the most serious like diabetes, cancer and heart disease when compared to their white counterparts. Black people are at the highest risk for cancer death, even though white people have the highest rate of new cancers. The rates for diagnosed diabetes in the United States are highest for Native Americans, followed closely by African Americans, and twice the rate of white Americans. Black men in the United States have 70% higher risk of heart failure compared with white men, and black women have 50% higher risk of heart failure compared with white women. Black adults are more than twice as likely as white adults, to be hospitalized for heart failure. The maternal mortality rate in the United States is highest for black women, and the rate for black women is over two and a half times that of white women. And sadly, the infant mortality rate in the United States for black infants and Native American infants is the highest, and also more than twice the rate of white infants. Racism in healthcare is real, and people 
are dying because of it. We all need to pay attention, regardless of your race and ethnicity, because as the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, of all the forms of inequality, injustice in healthcare is the most shocking and inhumane. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. At ARC, we believe in standing up, speaking out, and taking action to make positive change happen. And joining us today is a healthcare expert who's doing just that. She has unique credibility to speak on racism in healthcare because she's not only part of the demographic that suffers most from this healthcare injustice in the United States, but she's also one of the very few, only 2.5% of the U.S. doctors who also happens to be a black woman. Dr. Tamika Lashige completed her medical studies at Robert Wood Johnson Medical School in her home state of New Jersey after earning her Bachelor of Science degree in biology from Yale University. She completed her pediatric residency and neonatal fellowship at the University of Louisville. Then she practiced at the level three and four neonatal intensive care units in Texas for five years. Dr. Lashige then began her clinical administrative career as a medical director for managed care organizations focusing on utilization management and quality of care for Medicaid members. Dr. Lashige then earned her master's in healthcare administration, MHA, to further support her endeavors to help medical providers improve value by lowering the skyrocketing medical costs we've experienced in the United States while also increasing the quality of care. Dr. Tamika Lashige is not only a brilliant doctor, but an astute administrator who through personal experience understands the injustices and disparities in the United States healthcare system and is standing up, speaking out, and taking action to help address them. Dr. Tamika Lashige is an inspiration to all and another example for us of hope. Hope against all historic odds. And that's H-O-P-E, how optimistic people endure. The physician, healthcare executive, trailblazer and inspiration, my good friend, Dr. Tamika Lashige, joins me next. The Arc of Change podcast is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. Visit us at joinarcc.org to learn more about Arc and join our movement. Okay, welcome back to the Arc of Change. And as promised, we're now joined by our very special and esteemed guest, my good friend, the fantastic trailblazer, Dr. Tamika Lashige. Dr. Tamika, welcome to the Arc of Change. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm doing well. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. We are so happy to have you. Thank you for joining us. And uh, look, I've had the pleasure of getting to meet you, getting to know you, but the audience doesn't know you. So let's start off by having you introduce yourself to the audience. Absolutely. So hello, audience. I am Tamika Brandon Lashigay. I, I grew up in Newark, New Jersey, um, in a household of three to four generations. 
My brother and I had the privilege of having our great grandparents live with us and raise and influence us like an additional set of parents. And that is a unique experience that um, I wanted to share. I attended elementary school and middle school in my hometown and earned a full scholarship to attend an elite boarding school for high school that really sort of shaped my education and my career from there. Um, after that, as the first person in my family to attend college, I went to Yale University as a pre-med student and earned my medical degree from Robert Wood Johnson, which is now Rutgers Medical School. Wow. I became a pediatrician, then worked as a neonatologist before transitioning to healthcare leadership, focusing on managing the quality of care for vulnerable populations. I am currently living in Atlanta with my husband and two children. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, it, it's so funny you mentioned um, being raised or partially raised by your great grandparents. Um, very similar uh, to me. Uh, you know, my one of my 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 three heroes are my my mother, my grandmother, and my great grandmother. Uh, mm -hmm. But I spent way more time with my great grandmother than my grandmother because my grandmother still had to work. My great grandmother was retired, so she babysat me since I was born. Uh, until I was um, probably 15, 14 or 15 years old, I'd still go to her house. Um, you know, she lived to be 107. So she had a huge impact on my life. And I've told many stories on podcasts about her. So really, really good to see that we've got that, that in common. Yeah, we do. So tell us about your career path and some of your experiences. I mean, you know, obviously going to Yale and Rutgers uh, Medical School and becoming a pediatrician, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's not something that many of us are aware of. I think I mentioned the first uh, part, only uh, like 5.7% of, of doctors in the United States are African-American and, and only less than 3% are black women. So tell us about your career path and your experiences. Will do. So first, I'll start by saying that I could not have predicted my career path. Um, meanwhile, I wouldn't change a thing. Uh, historically, doctors become doctors to practice medicine, and they perform in clinics, hospitals, or public health sites until retirement. And that's what it meant to be a doctor. Well, I originally wanted to become an elementary school teacher. I grew up in a family where the individuals had not gone beyond high school, and some didn't complete high school. So a few of the teachers uh, that I had served as the only Black professional women I got to see. And it was one of them in the sixth grade who challenged me to aspire for something more. After doing my assigned homework, she approved of me taking my love of children and science and becoming a pediatrician. And so I did. Wow. Uh, in the early stages of my pediatric training, I realized that the pediatricians doing the work for the people and in the environments where I could see myself working, well, they were they were just outright downtrodden. They were mm -hmm. burned out and they looked like they were losing hope quickly. Although they still tirelessly continued to show up and give their all each and every day. Well, my takeaway was that the system and the resources for what I thought I wanted to do didn't align with the outcomes I wanted to achieve. So I started seeking other venues within pediatrics that would make good use of my desire, um, be fulfilling and impactful. And that's how I found and fell in love with neonatology. Taking care of premature babies and families at some of their most vulnerable moments, that brought me so much joy. The risk and challenges were high. Um, and while I have 
some losses that I will never, ever forget. The triumphs were even greater. The impact to the families um, could last a lifetime. So I practiced neonatology full-time for over five years before jumping into managed care. Um, at that point, I served as a medical director and eventually chief medical officer for managed care organizations or hospital systems. And in these roles, I got to lead teams focused on improving the quality of care for children and for vulnerable individuals, um, especially those who utilize the Medicaid system. For me, this is monumental given the fact that I was a child who grew up on Medicaid. And so to have my career come full circle was beyond my wildest dreams and I have so much passion and dedication to this work. That's that's amazing. I, I love the fact of, of you recognizing how your career comes full circle. And um, it's really another just great example of how our, our social structures and our systems that are set up by the government to provide help for those who need it, to allow for those families to provide for their children and give them a chance to pursue the American dream that would be out of reach without it. And then for you to obviously be giving back to be part of that uh, that uh, administrative system now is really amazing. Um, I mentioned earlier, there's less than 3% of our doctors are black women. You are one of them, one of the rare, rare uh, folks that are out there. What unique challenges um, have you experienced or what, what has it been like uh, to be a, a female doctor, a black female doctor as well? Yeah, that's that's a loaded question, um, and it is really difficult to describe with the word and just really encompass it all. I have maybe some experiences and examples that I can share um, that will uh, help you understand. Yeah. So one, every I would say we have to pin ourselves and remind ourselves to be proud, right, and that we belong. Some of the unique challenges can involve how we look, how we dress how we speak, nothing to do with practicing medicine. Um, people talk a lot about imposter syndrome and I have mixed feelings about that, right? I refuse to go there as a concept that is internalized by an individual. I believe those feelings, especially for black female physicians, those feelings of doubt are implanted externally. Yes. So some examples regularly, I have to state where I was educated and how many years I've been practicing before a family would be okay with me treating their child. When this is not the case for, you know, non-Black male counterparts, they didn't have to do the same. And this still occurs to this day. Um, and I hate to normalize it, but we come to expect it. So there are some experiences that I will never forget, right? I will never forget emergency situations where I would respond to a code of a baby in the NICU, the neonatal ICU, and I'm jumping to perform CPR where the parents would actually delay the situation to question my background. Whoa. Right. And there's a team of us. They didn't question anyone else, but they'll stop me and they'd rather let precious moments go by, you know, before they allow me to save their baby. Wow. I remember, um, yeah, it's, I will never forget those moments. Um, I remember attempting to take care of an elderly black woman in medical school. She reminded me of my very own grandmother, yes. right? So I was determined to give her the best care possible. And in the sweetest and sincerest manner, 
she kindly refused to accept my care and said she'd prefer to have an old white male doctor. She was real sweet about it. Hey, baby, I'm really proud of you, but I need an older person, a white and a male doctor to take care of me. So please go take care of that. And it was a hit for sure. And I was a medical student. But I will say, having grown up the way I grew up, I wasn't offended because it wasn't about me. And because this lady reminded me of my grandmother, I quickly channeled my grandmother. My very own grandmother was just like this patient used to doctors being old white men. And hence, they would be the smartest and best to care for her. And these were the experiences that shaped their biases, which were then confirmed by societal norms. So when a family decided that, um, you know, later on in my career, I'm now a neonatologist, that they wanted the older white male physician to perform their son's circumcision, I would say, no problem. Good luck, night you. You know, meanwhile, I tickled inside because along with everything else I was doing, I was performing 10 of these procedures per day. Meanwhile, the guy who they wanted, who notably taught me, hadn't performed one in 10 years. Oh, my gosh. And I let them have him. So I'm no longer affected by these situations because I know it's more about them than it is about me. It takes a lot of time to get there and experience. But once you know and love who you are, you are less negatively affected by someone else's ignorance. Now, that being said, I shared this with a buddy the other day. On the flip side, I randomly come across older Black women. I don't take care of them. I don't work with them. They met me one time. They'll see me in the hospital setting or operating as a clinical leader, and they will simply stop to tell me how proud they are of me. Wow. Right? Um, and I'm thinking, you don't even know me to be proud. What if I did something wrong yesterday? But I get it. From their perspective, what they see of me automatically makes them proud. And so it's for my generation and the generations above to instill the self-love in those that are younger yeah. so that they can reach this point sooner. Um, and then I'll, I'll share another proud moment. Yes. Uh, when my daughter was about six years old, she overheard a conversation about gender norms in medicine. I think it was a bunch of doctors and nurses talking. And she piped in with an aha moment saying, oh, I thought all doctors were women. <laughs> right? So she's my daily barometer of pride. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that was a fun moment. That's that's fantastic. Um, uh, it, it's funny. The last podcast I did was with a, a guy named Dr. Otto Stallworth Jr. Uh, he's African-American, but he's in his 70s. So he's been a physician for a long time, anesthesiologist. But he tells a story that's a little more harsh than yours about the, having being called to save uh, a, an older white man um, who was going through some issues. And uh, the first thing the guy asked him is, are you an N or are you a doctor? Um, and I said, well, how did you respond? He said, I told him, well, I'm a, I'm a doctor. I am black, but I'm not, I'm not an end. I said, well, did you still treat him? He said, of course. He said, of course I treated him, yeah. you know? And um, yeah. so it's just amazing the things that, that you all have had to go through being such a small minority, um, you know, in a field that's so important, uh, especially when you consider all of the um, disparities that people of color face 
um, specifically African-Americans, Native Americans, Latinos in this country. We can go through all the stats. You know them well. Higher cancer rates, higher diabetes rates, infant mortality rates, all of these. Um, and and part, of, part of it we hear, I'd like to hear your perspective, is you know we don't have a lot of access to medical units, a lot of our neighborhoods, to great medical care. Um, there's, there's not then a lot of access to um, preventative medical care. And there's not a lot of doctors who look like us, and there's a, a history of mistrust. Uh, so maybe you can tell us what, what it have. What have you seen? Have you seen, um, you know, evidence? Uh, obviously, in, in your role with Medicare, some of the or Medicaid, some of the disparities. Tell us about why you know some of these, and why do you think they exist? What can we do? Oh, yes. There's sadly too many to name. Um, there's a lot of racist mit- mistruths in medicine. Um, you know, you, you've talked about in the past about the one where um, there's the belief that Black people don't feel pain or don't feel as much pain because their skin is thicker. And so you're allowed to do different procedures on them without pain medication because they'll be fine. Yes. Um, but I talked so, about that earlier. I think there was a study done by by Harvard Medical Institute or something like that where it showed like, you know, I want to say like 10 or 20 percent of medical students actually believe that, which is crazy. Yeah. Medical school students. And and the crazy part is it's not history. That pain disbelief still unfortunately exists today. And it's sadly because the textbooks that made that medical fact in quotes still exist today. Right. And so. We've got to get in front of these misconceptions. Um, and I learned that one way is through research, right? Um, one example that has made me lose a lot of sleep, and I think I will never forget, there was a Black child who died in one of the hospitals where I led the quality team. Mm. Hence, it was it was my team's job to do a thorough investigation. I learned that the pulse oximeter, right, which is a device placed on your finger or your toe that's designed to yes. read your oxygenation level, yes. is inaccurate on dark skin. I've been in medicine for a long time at that point, and so first time I'd ever heard that. Hence, the nurses who, this was common knowledge to them, tended to be slower to respond, if at all, when that level is reading low on a Black person. So essentially, the nurses have calibrated their minds to the inaccuracy of the equipment. This baby was on a continuous monitor that was grossly ignored as his oxygen level went down and down and down to nothing because he was black all the way until he died in our care. Right. Just devastating and preventable and unnecessary. Um, And so the backstory is that dark-skinned individuals were not included in the research trials used to make that machine. So they're calibrated to white people only. It just, it blows my mind. And this extends to so many other aspects of medicine, right? And that's just a technical piece of it. Wow. Um, it, it, it makes me think of, um, as you mentioned, some of the textbooks still have this information. It, it kind of makes me a little angry also knowing that, uh, um, you know, most of our current and modern gynecological knowledge um, was produced by uh, a doctor who I refuse to say his name because I don't want to give him credit um, that, uh, you know, did experiments on on black women who were held in, in slavery and, and captive uh, without anesthesia because, again, they believed they didn't feel pain. 
Um, and uh, of course, we all know of the so-called Tuskegee experiment uh, right. that 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 also occurred, where where black men, hundreds of them, were denied treatment, lied to. They were told they were being treated, they weren't, to see what would happen. Um, and as as they de- health deteriorated and they died, um, and you're saying still, I mean, is it is is and I'm guessing there's a lot more medical information and knowledge that was gained, and yet the people who suffered because of this are not represented in the in the doctors that gained fame are. Is, is this still? I mean, is there is there any recognition in in medicine in education? to start changing some of this this narrative around these people who were the father of gynecology and all these things? Exactly. We're, we're getting better at it, um, but we're just scratching the surface. But I agree with you. Uh, these victims or actually, you know, the victims were the heroes in, yes. in this history lesson, right? Um, and they should get the recognition. I will personal caveat, I'm personally not big on recognition. Um, It just doesn't drive it for me. Um, And my supporters tell me this is a place that I can improve because I would allow others to take credit for my own contributions. I just want things to be better. And I typically don't care about who did it and why. Um, And I I used to think that that part was for the history books, right? And that I only care about the impact, but I am fully aware that it does matter. Um, and it broke my heart when I learned the truth about how these medical developments came to be. Mm. Um, I know that I cannot change the past, but what I can do is speak up when others go, well, the Tuskegee Institute happened so long ago. Why don't you guys just get over it? Why don't you still trust the medical system today? Because that was enough. One, that was just one, and there's hundreds of those types of experiments that took place, but that's enough. And so I can be that voice to bring that history forward and make sure that the history is as complete as I know it. Mm-hmm. What, what about as a patient? Um, obviously, you're, you're a doctor, but you're also a patient. You have children, you have a husband, um, you, have, you have your family outside of that, your, your, your uh, extended family. Um, have you seen or have your family seen or experienced racism or bias as patients, even though you are a doctor? Yes, of course. Even um, even sometimes in the health system that I work at. Um, even sometimes by the providers who don't know that I'm actually the one on top of on top of their boss. Wow. Um, you know, and it is really sad, right? And I try to come in as a patient and then you realize that you get more and more, um, you get improved treatment the more you recognize how much you know about the system. And I hate that we have to do that. And I never like to be a patient pulling the doctor card until it gets to a point where the disrespect is outrageous and I have to just tell them who I am and what I know and what I'm going to demand in terms of what acceptable treatment is for myself or my family. Um, I'm familiar with a story. Um, This one's not about myself, but this was about a Black man who was the health equity officer at a children's hospital. We worked together. And he witnessed racism and disparities towards himself and his family when he took his own daughter to that very hospital's emergency department for a sickle cell crisis. So in that statement alone, Black male, health equity leader, 
going to the emergency department for sickle cell, right? And a girl, right, who doesn't feel pain. And sickle cell being a um, genetic disorder that has a ton of disparities in terms of funding and recognition, that was just a lot in and of itself. Yes. But it was real life for him. Um, And then from then on, sadly, he needed to wear his badge to be recognized every time his daughter needed emergency care. Wow. Uh, This is... um... It is is very distressing to be honest to hear you know these stories and um, again know that uh, we we don't a, a number of us come from families that just don't have the access uh, and the knowledge yeah. you know I don't I don't think I have a doctor in my immediate family but we had one of my uncles was a um, a uh, respiratory therapist so he knew enough yeah. and so unfortunately anytime someone had a medical problem. Um, and they weren't really sure what to do or to make sure they were getting the right care, we would have to conference call him in just to make sure yep. that we were getting the appropriate care, whether it was my mother or my aunt or anyone, we would always conference him in. Unfortunately, he, he passed away a couple of years ago. So now we don't have that resource. Um, and yeah. I just, I, I shudder to think at folks who, you know, don't even, don't even have anything close to that. And there's most of us that don't. So it's just, right. it's very, very sad. Um, you know, switching subjects, I, I do want to ask you something that happened yesterday uh, that kind of impacts what, what's going on. And that is, you know, obviously we're, we're, you know, like I mentioned, less than 6% of the doctors today are black. Um, there's less and less entering medical school. Um, and we just had a, a, a landmark ruling yesterday, Supreme Court striking down affirmative action for uh, admittance into universities. Um, and we've seen in, in the states where they, they their state Supreme Courts, I think it judged, I think it, in California, uh, and I think Michigan, um, both of them, um, admittance of minority students in their schools of science have gone down significantly. Um, yep. So in this, the question for you is, as we try to figure out how do we get more black doctors um, in, in the face of what happened yesterday, what, what do you think needs to happen? And why is it important that we have more black doctors? Uh, it's extremely important. I'll start with why it's important. And I'll start with, um, with data and recent articles. Um, being a pediatrician, I'm going to focus on some of the examples that took place with children in mind. But there's a well-known article that was written in the last couple of years that proved that when Black babies are taken care of by Black doctors, the mortality rate is lower. Mm. We're not talking about health outcomes being better. We're talking death, life or death, right? And so there's a real thing behind what we call um, racial congruent care. Mm -hmm. Right. When the patient and the doctor share the same race. It matters. It matters. To a point of life or death. And. When we don't have that, you see disparities, right, specifically to healthcare, um, for my realm and. Education to the point of, you know, the affirmative action ruling that took place yesterday and education leads to so many other disparities, right? Talking about disparities 
Is it race? Is it income level? Is it education level that determines it? And I always say all of the above. Yeah. Um, they exist by race, by socioeconomic status. They can exist by zip code. Yes. They can exist by gender and they can exist by ability. Um, but I've had a friend that always makes this explanation and I really want to share this in this podcast. It's about disparity and the way that we use disparities and we talk about healthcare disparities and we talk about disparities in education. Well, by definition, disparity is simply a difference. Yeah. Nothing more than a difference, right? So there's a disparity in height between my husband, who's almost seven foot tall, and me, who's below five feet. Yeah. Just a difference. There's nothing wrong with that difference. It's just stating a fact. What we need to talk about is the reason for the disparities that could be prevented, right? And those are usually um, caused by inequity. So inequities in wealth, right, for our people are due to historic laws in preventing education and home ownership for Black people that led to some of the disparities we see today. Yes, Those things could have been prevented. That's what we should be talking about. And so I really want to shift the conversation to healthcare inequities, right? Things that we can fix. Um, and, you know, along the lines of those inequities that persist today, we know most of them. Yes. And they're continuing to persist because of complacency. Yes. Right? Or ignorance and complacency in the people that hold the power to make the change, right? When people are aware, they have to fight the tough battle to get change. And not everyone's willing to take it on. It's exhausting. Yeah. And you honestly lose more battles than you win. Um, someone gave me this phrase yesterday and I really had to think on it. And it was about making change in healthcare. It's specifically around quality. And she said it requires gentle pressure consistently applied. As a physician, mm. I love that play on words. Yeah. As a leader, that is, it speaks to me. Yeah. And then immediately after that, because she and I have a good relationship and she know the lens through which I look, she quickly acknowledged as a healthcare leader, that works well for white women. Mm. Right? When I was applying that same pressure, my pressure wasn't gentle mm. because Black babies were dying daily. Yes. And one of them could have been my own. So I needed a fierce urgency, right? Our organizations and our systems aren't meant to do anything urgently, not well. Mm. Uh, but I was refusing to give up. So I did apply consistently um, but you reach burnout quickly. And that's what you see in a lot of our um, our leaders and advocates. Wow. This is, um, I mean, this is just really, really educational for me. A little distressing to hear all of these stories, but a wake-up call uh, to all of us. And, and this idea of consistently applying pressure. I did a podcast at the beginning of this year uh, entitled Hope, H-O-P-E, How Optimistic People Endure. And it's this mm. idea of the struggle of, of trying to drive for equity um, and trying to drive for social justice. It is exhausting. 
when you can when you feel all these disparities around you and it almost feels like you're for one step forward you take four back sometimes yeah. you know yesterday's judgment i'm sure that disappointed a lot of people but it's it's this concept that consistent pressure um that's what we have to do find that wherewithal and that inspiration to be consistent like those ladies that are telling you how proud they are of you and why it's important for you to take credit so other young girls can look up and young men can look up and say, wow, I can do that. I can do that too. And just a reminder for everyone else, consistent pressure also means voting. Elections have that's consequences. Right. And that's what we saw yesterday. It's a consequence. So please um, apply consistent pressure, everyone, and vote. And I'd just like to ask Dr. Tamika, is there any final thought or final story or final point you'd like to make to the audience before we let you go? Well, um, I would say because it's got to be applied consistently, you have to, to have sustainable impact and to not kill yourself in the process. You need to work and lead in a way that makes you most comfortable, right? It begins with learning yourself first, loving yourself, and then improving something in a way that is authentic to you powerful. I can't improve upon that. Thank you so much, Dr. Tamika. You are an inspiration uh, to many, many people. And I'm sure there'll be many more who listen to this podcast that will walk away inspired and have the drive to now go out and, and apply that consistent pressure to drive change, to educate themselves and to love themselves. Thank you Thank so very you. much. Thank you for inviting me to participate in this discussion with you. I am really inspired by the work that you do. Thank you so much. We hope to have you back soon. Take care. Visit us at joinarc.org to learn more about ARC. Donate to our cause and join the movement that will change the world. To find the Arc of Change podcast with Donzo Leggett, and learn more about the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, or ARC, please visit us at joinarc.org. You can also subscribe to the ARC of Change with Donzo Leggett on your favorite podcast hosting sites. I greatly look forward to our next episode, an opportunity to inspire you to become part of the movement that will change the world by eradicating racism once and for all. Until next time, stay safe and continue to ask yourself, am I doing enough? And remember that none of us are doing enough as long as racism and hate still exist. Thanks for listening and goodbye. The Arc of Change podcast with Donzel Leggett is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. To learn more about Arc, donate to our cause and join the coalition, visit joinarcc.org. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and share this podcast to help spread our mission to change the world by ending racism once and for all. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay safe and be inspired.